This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this week's episode, Paul Jaceley, filling in for Mike Rappin, who's off on vacation, I presume, since it is the start of summer here in the United States, but we're still pertinent in the work here at the podcast for you. Uh, this is episode 288, and I am joined by two mental organisms designed only for grilling, Nick White. Hey. And Kate Lamphere. Being an organism must be why I'm reading so much food manga. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. You're perfect. You're going to brush up on your cooking skills for the uh, summer holiday here, the Memorial Day holiday. You know, gang, I am here and uh, I am legally obligated in the pro- producer host chair and duties to ask two questions. And I need to know the answers. You're legally bound to reply to these questions. How have you been? How have comic books been? I'm going to start with you, Kate. I've been great. I uh, My garden is coming along, nice. even though we've had multiple storms here in Michigan. <laughs> yes, yes. And I have been reading a few books off of our uh, 2021 reading challenge on Goodreads. Okay. Ironically, <laughs> I've, I read Nick's pick recently, which is Bang by Matt Kent, uh, Bulfredo Torres, and Young Wilson. Um, this is a really uniquely constructed book. Um, there's like a prose section to introduce each basically issue. I read the volume, but mm-hmm. um, there's a prose section to introduce each issue and to like end each issue, which is really uh, something that I I don't usually like in comics. Like I don't really enjoy having to read a bunch of prose mm-hmm. to understand a comic book. But this one, one, the prose is not very long. And then two, it's very relevant to the story. Like it's mm-hmm. actually an excerpt out of something. So you really do need to read these these little bits to really follow what's happening in the comic book, the the actual the actual mm-hmm. comic book part of the comic. <laughs> right. Um and and at first, it's a very action-heavy book, and that's also something that I'm not usually into. Like the first couple of pages, I was like, "Oh, this is uh, this is just James Bond, got it." And then after the first like five pages, it was like, "Oh, oh, this <laughs> changed. What's happening?" <laughs> right, right. That was my so, reaction too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it it was a a really unique story, um, and I do I do recommend it. I like it, and if you're reading the if you're following the the Reading challenge and Goodreads, Nick. I think this was a really good pick. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I I 100% agree with you on on pretty much everything you've said. Normally, I'm not a fan of prose either. I tend to skip it. Um, I think that the fact that it's such a short section of prose will help because, as you said, I do think it's relevant. I do think it's important. Uh, I do think it's helpful to understanding the story. Uh, and so I hope people are reading it. Um, either if, if you haven't read this yet, you should read the prose. Um, uh, and, you know, I, for readers who have already read the book, I hope that, that there, because there was so little of it, that at least people did, because I do think it adds to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I do yeah. love that it sort of riffs on Die Hard, Knight Rider, James Bond, um, and then, as I think I mentioned on a, an, another episode, what's really weird is that this, uh, let's tiptoe around this, the whole like author, the whole issue of the author in this, um, that author is also in Matt Kent's book, uh, Fear Case. So there's some sort of a shared universe between these books, which is kind of interesting because he's never formally put that out there. Like, I don't know why no one's put yeah. it to him yet, but he hasn't said that they're connected, but they're connected. 
There was a bit of an afterword in the volume on Hoopla uh, for Bang where he mentions oh, that. interesting. <laughs> okay, I read it in singles, so I guess, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, especially if you have any uh, borrows left for the month, we're recording this on the 30th, <laughs> so you still have like a day. Right, <laughs> right. Deadline's month, coming up. Your monthly yeah. checkout. <laughs> the other book I read was A Gift for a Ghost by Borja Gonzalez and Lee Douglas as the translator. This was Mike's pick for the Goodreads Reading Challenge. Um, this is a really visually stunning book. The color choices reminded me of Tilly Walden. There's only like mm. two colors and then black and white. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the way that it starts again was not the way that it ends. <laughs> um, I, at first, I thought that it was a historical, like light fantasy, a couple of fantastical elements in it, um, and then suddenly it turns into like maybe a, a 1980s kind of like just day in the life type of comic book, um, and then suddenly like it ended in a way where everything kind of came together. Um, and it makes me feel like I need to read it again just to pick up all the, these different puzzle pieces that yeah. I was just like, I was just enjoying reading, even though like there's kind of this time shift in it. And then suddenly it was like, I don't know, it's like a puzzle coming together at the end in the last few pages. I, so <laughs> I feel like I haven't sold this, but it's a quick read <laughs> and it's on Hoopla. So. No, I mean, I was right, right there with you up until the point where you said it all came together for you. Like that was... Um, that was kind of the hurdle for, for me with this book. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous book, but it is definitely one of those books for me where I'm like, am I too dumb for this book or am I massively overthinking this book? Um, I think that it, I, I think I definitely need to reread it and to not try to overthink it. I think part of the beauty of it is that it's just, a little abstract oh like, sure it's it just is yeah. what it is like it definitely feels I'm like sure a that book that read... benefits from like multiple rereads 100 percent. yeah yeah i think that there is some some more things kind of going on between the lines like i think that there there is some like very real life struggles happening especially um in the 1980s storyline mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but um in terms of just like the construction of the story um, I think I just like it's one of those things that you just you can't think about it too hard. <laughs> this know? is the book where everybody yeah. is like faceless as well, right? That's one of the things that right. I, I yeah, keep yeah. <laughs> remembering. And it bugged me at first, but I I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. It's such a unique you know aesthetic experience that you know when you try to put the pieces of the puzzle together and treat it as a, something to figure out, you kind of lose the magic of it. That was my experience with it. it was like. If you just go with it and sort of let it uh, unravel in front of you, rather than trying to fit it together in a structured narrative, it's way more enjoyable. So yeah, but also I do want to go back and reread it and see if there are details that maybe I missed that there's a deeper connection there that you know I didn't notice the first time. So again, this was Mike's pick for the reading challenge, and uh, yeah, he picked a good one. I have to admit it. Yeah, it's for me. I think <laughs> the the core conceit for me, like even if I don't read it again, is that. Like it sort of, you know, conjures up ineffable feelings and moods and yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That alone, I think like if it does that for you, like it did that for me, then that's, that's fine. Then it's doing a job, I think. For sure. Yeah. It's a good one. Um, 
definitely one I will probably reread. So uh, I don't know about Bang. I don't know if I'll reread that one, Nick. No offense, okay, but, we uh, didn't. We didn't, didn't need to. It, so. We didn't. There wasn't really an invitation to go there, but I mean, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to take <laughs> it's <okay>. um, <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, Nick, how have you been? Uh, what have you read recently? I've been good. I think, you know, West Michigan weather watch would be that we're still in that phase of like, do I take the comforter off the bed? Do I not? Do I finally put it away <laughs> in the closet? Do I not? Do I need the extra blankets tonight? I don't know. We'll take them off and I'll definitely need them. That's. <laughs> I definitely had to use. I definitely had to use both the air conditioning and the heat within the past week yeah. at my house. Yeah. So <laughs> Michigan typical, has arrived at that Michigan. point. Yeah. And the sad <laughs> part is, I am so lazy that I'm like, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to take the blankets <laughs> off the bed, and I will just suffer until we reach the point where mm-hmm. I don't need it. So, um, in terms of what I've read, uh, I did get through a couple things. Let's just dunk on a book right out of the gate so we can go positive afterward. Um, I read X-Ray Robot, Volume 1. This came out last year. It's from Mike Uh Allred, colors by Laura Allred, letters by Nate Picos. This was for Dark Horse. I like Mike Allred. I like his art. I think it looks great. Any book with Mike Allred art, I'm going to read it. Any covers with Mike Allred art, those are probably the covers I'm going to buy. That said... I don't think this is Mike Allred's crowning achievement. And it makes me sad because there's obviously that stereotype out there and it's, it's antiquated and it's wrong in most cases, unless you're David Finch. Oh, who said that? I don't know. Um, But there's the idea that writers need to be writers. Artists need to be artists and never the twain shall meet and stay in your lane, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously we all know a bunch of examples that break this rule unless again, you're David Mm -hmm. Finch, in which case you, reinforce it a million times over and it's it's confusing with this book because i i think it would have either benefited at first i was like well maybe he didn't have an editor but it did and then i was like well maybe um he didn't have a co-writer maybe lee allred wasn't working on this book and sure enough no co-writer no lee allred mm-hmm. no other co-writer and i was like hmm because this book can't decide how serious it wants to be yeah It can't decide how fun it wants to be. It can't decide if it's a serious plot or a MacGuffin plot. Uh, It can't decide if it wants to front load this book with tons of uh, time travel theories and then have a bunch of fun jumping into weird alternate universes in the middle that I did enjoy. Like, uh, um, I don't know. What, 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 are, what are your thoughts, <laughs> I, Paul? Because honestly, I, this was yeah. a disappointment for me. And I just kept thinking, gosh, I wish I was reading Art Ops again. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I think I enjoyed it more than you. But I also kind of agree with your your critique. It kind of felt like it was missing an issue. You know what I mean? Like there were maybe pacing, I feel like when I was reading, pacing I was, like, was awful. Yeah, it's a pacing issue. Yeah, it kind of wraps up so suddenly. You're like, boy, there should have been another issue in here to kind of tease out some of the ideas. That said... It looks incredible. I oh, love the visual style of it. Absolutely. The sort of conceit of time travel with multiple dimensions, with you know a family drama, there's a lot there to unpack. I just don't think it's given enough time to really be unpacked. And it kind of feels sort of flaccid as a result, which is a shame because, again, Allred is such a unique talent that it. I was expecting a lot more from this book. 
and I haven't read Madman, but in some ways it felt to me mm-hmm. like as someone who has um, as someone who has seen pictures of the Madman comic, um, <laughs> that right. like it felt like it was trying to channel that zany Madman energy, but like shifted into like a modern like I'm all grown up now kind of situation. This is just wild speculation on my part. Well, it isn't yeah, helped I've, by I've... the fact that there are like th- what three Madmen. Mad man, not Don Draper, um, <laughs> Mike Allred's character. <laughs> Three yeah, madman yeah. references within this book. Um, there's right. there's literally madman comics in the book. And again, I feel like that's part of Allred's aesthetic. You know, he does sort of, it's similar to the way that, you know, Mike Mignola yeah. is it has a certain aesthetic in the universe, even though it might not be fully like fleshed out or there's always going to be sort of connections between their, their works. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the difference is that Madman actually has a strong, identifiable, compelling lead character. And this book, the characters never really get a chance to sort of define who they are or what's important to their relationships. Right. And that's that's what was kind of confusing (laughs) for me because it's like, I haven't read that book, but based on what I've heard other people feel about that book, like the idea that, Mike Allred can't write a book all by himself is is it's definitively yeah, not true. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, yeah, I mean there's I, I, I think if you were let down by this book, then you you it behooves you to try Madman, which is feels like a better version of what this is. Interesting. So. I mean, that said, everybody, it's a gorgeous book. It's a it's a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> book. Why would you expect course, any less, of right? Course. Of course it is. <laughs> right. Um yeah. I will also say I read Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales, Rate of No Return. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more um, in the larger segment uh, in the second half of this show. Okay. But suffice it to sure. say, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the other book I will briefly bring up is Ha Ha, number five. Yes, if I'm on and there was a Ha Ha issue, <laughs> we're going to talk about Ha Ha. Like, I'm sorry. It's going to happen. Uh, this is written by W. Maxwell Prince. Uh, art by Gabriel Walta, letters by good old Neon. Um, I don't want to give too much away, he said, before he gave too much away. Um, but Prince is one of those writers who has almost developed this tendency of flipping the script, of having the other shoe drop, um, you know, of having Chekhov's gun that, you know, sneakily finds its way into Act 1 and then drops out of nowhere in Act 3. Uh, we can call it an M. Night Shyamalan if you want. Um for, for better or for worse, I think readers have come to anticipate these things from his work. Um, and I think that's actually worked for him um, because there's there's almost like the second layer of misdirect now, which is that like people anticipate or try to parse the work or try to find the misdirect. And they're so obsessed with mm-hmm. finding the misdirect that sometimes there's never actually a misdirect in the first place, thus causing a second misdirect. Sure. I'll make a flow yeah. chart for everyone. We'll attach it to the show notes. <laughs> um, and like the whole, the whole idea, basically what I think it was Freud who said some, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, right? Like, so, right. Uh, and yeah. I think that's what this issue is. Haha. Number five is sometimes what you see is actually what you get. And sometimes, sometimes I think especially people who are so conditioned to, W. Maxwell Prince's work, especially Ice Cream Man, are so mm-hmm. – they're waiting for the other shoe to drop 
They're waiting for things to get sinister. They're waiting for things to get twisted. And I think that that's good because that allows for issues like number five to exist that sort of flip the script on the idea of flipping the script. Gotcha. I'm dancing yeah. around this a lot because I just want people to read this mm-hmm. issue. It's good. It shows <laughs> okay. W. Maxwell Prince has range. Obviously, it's clown-oriented. It's a little sad. It's a little melancholy. I don't want to say much more than that. Uh, we got Gabriel Walta on art. Um, mm-hmm. Shock, gasp. I'm not the biggest Gabriel Walta fan, but I really enjoyed mm. this work. I don't okay. know what it is between like this and Sentient, and I don't know if it happened in, in Tom King's division, but does Gabriel Walta only sign on to works where there's potential child endangerment? Because after reading this, <laughs> I kind of wonder if like that's his rider, <laughs> like that's his rider when he signs on to a book. Interesting. Yeah, I don't sure. know. It's weird. <laughs> anyway, um, thoroughly enjoyed it. If you haven't read Ha Ha, I would pick it up. Even if you're someone who hasn't read Ice Cream Man or won't read Ice Cream Man because you're not into horror, pick up Ha Ha when it's done. There's one more issue left. Sure. I I feel like it's different enough. And as these issues go on, it's almost like he's sort of guiding his Ice Cream Man readers from a point of like, I want Ice Cream Man. This is what I want out of a book. I just want more of that. And like, it feels like as Ha Ha mm-hmm. goes on, it's almost this trajectory of slowly guiding those readers to the idea that, you know, we can do something else. Like there's some freedom here. Like if you like this, we're going to move in a slightly different direction, but it's going to be slow. I don't know. It's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll I'll check this out at some point. I remember like, reading about it and thinking it would make something to read in trade. So uh, yeah, yeah, once that trade drops, I'll probably check it out. And and I think a lot of people, because they know Ice Cream Man and they know this is about clowns, like there's almost instantly this idea that it's what killer clowns from outer space, it insert every other haha clowns are funny. Also clowns are scary dichotomy. Like it's Mm -hmm. not, that would be low hanging fruit and it's not that. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, you've, you've kind of intrigued me, Nick. So yeah, that does happen occasionally. Yeah, <laughs> occasionally. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That'll be the uh, poll well, quote. As... You've kind of intrigued me. <laughs> <laughs> very yeah, very enthusiastic endorsement there. Very lukewarm. Um, <laughs> uh, well, for me, I've read a few things uh, recently. I am constantly two weeks behind on my weekly floppies. Sure. So um. But I'm slowly making my way through the big stack of stuff I grabbed last time I was at the shop. Luckily, I have a nice uh, vacation coming up. I took next week off, so I have plenty of time to read comics and get caught up. Ideally, we'll see. But a couple of things I wanted to talk about specifically this week. Uh, one thing I read recently was the book Sabrina by Nick Gernasso. Uh, this came out in 2018, published by Drawn and Quarterly, and basically received uh, metric tons of critical praise when it came out. One of the books that was hailed as one of the best of the year. So it was on my to-read list, on my radar for a while. I finally found a copy at the local library, so I decided to finally check it out. This is a comic that I enjoyed as 
a sort of formalistic aesthetic experience. I enjoyed the so not at all the structure of it. Exactly. <laughs> but as as a story, it might be one of the mo- most morose, depressing comics I've ever read. Oh, um, so I, I'm very hesitant to recommend it. But I think in terms of formal structure and storytelling, it's actually really, really interesting. It just that the story again is incredibly sort of um, grim at times. So. Again, uh, the titular character, Sabrina, is a woman who uh, disappears, basically is presumed kidnapped, and the rest of the book is basically how that affects the people in her life. Um, And it sort of follows – the main sort of character you follow through most of the book is Sabrina's boyfriend's friend from high school who is letting Sabrina's boyfriend stay with him while they figure everything out, try to find where she is. And – the book sort of follows this character and it follows the way that Sabrina's disappearance becomes distorted by the media and the internet. So the book is sort of a meditation on how the media and internet culture transforms things. Uh, I'm being very vague here, but yeah. basically Sabrina's disappearance becomes part of a massive conspiracy theory and uh, the people in her life start getting uh strange messages and threats because people have bought into this conspiracy theory about her disappearance. So it's a very um, uh, topical book. You know, we've seen within this past calendar year, the real life effects that conspiracy theories can have and the real devastating effects they can have. So in that regard, it's almost too close to the surface, you know, reading it in the year 2021, uh, which made it kind of tough to get through. But I think Drenazzo's artwork is enough to kind of make it an enjoyable, uh, quote unquote, enjoyable experience, <laughs> at least an interesting experience. <laughs> it really reminds me of Chris Ware. If you've read any of Chris Ware's books, um, the art is so simple and formalistic in structure. And yet the, there's a sort of a, a depressing, depressing uh, aspect to the story. A lot of Chris Ware's work strikes me that same way. And Drenazzo's artwork is so simple the line work is almost, you know, the simplest cartoon work you've seen. And it's all just, you know, simple panel layouts, grid work. And yet you're sort of mesmerized by the simplicity of it. That makes sense. It's a lot more complex than it appears on the surface. And he does a thing where every every character has that sort of vague Mona Lisa smile where you can't tell if they're actually smiling or frowning. Their emotions are so clouded by the artwork that it's really difficult to get a sense of what they're feeling. And I think that kind of adds to the oddly engaging and grossing aspect of the book, despite it being incredibly depressing. So I don't know if I'd recommend it. I don't know if I'm doing a good job selling it, but I think it's something if you want to see a very distinct, unique voice in comics, this is a good example. Just uh, be forewarned that it's kind of will leave you gutted by the end of the story emotionally. Okay, so it's it's not <laughs> X-ray Robot Part Two. Gotcha. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting book. I'm glad I read it, but again, I, it's not one that I would would enthusiastically recommend, especially for someone who's uh, sort of prone to um, that sort of uh, not engaging with the depressing material that way. So, um, uh, speaking of depressing comics, Uh-oh. I also read Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Justice League Last Ride Number One. This is a mini series written by Chip Zdarsky. And art with art by Miguel Mendoca. 
this was originally announced to be a digital first series that DC was going to do, and I guess they ended up just publishing it physically instead. So I grabbed the first issue. I recently finished all of the Chip Zdarsky Daredevil stuff available on Hoopla, so I needed some more Zdarsky in my life, I guess. So um, this is a Justice League story, but what's interesting about it is that it takes place in an undisclosed time in continuity where something has happened to the Justice League. There's a hint of a crisis that took place, but there's no details given. But whatever happened really strained the relationships between Superman and Batman and the rest of the members of the Justice League. So you're basically jumping into a story later down the road, and I feel like Zadarcy is going to drop hints of what exactly happened. But you get a Justice League that's sort of strained and doesn't trust each other. There's a lot of resentment going on, reading between the lines of what they're saying to each other. And of course, the story is that they have to work together again. And their goal in this story is to protect Lobo, who is being charged with killing the new gods. And they're just as he's being tasked with keeping him safe before he can stand trial. So it's a really interesting, almost like cartoony, silly Justice League premise. And yet it's handled so seriously. I kind of like that where you have the idea of the Justice League always being friends. That's not the case anymore. And you have this sort of big cosmic story that they have to deal with, but it's not the sort of action focused story that you normally get out of a Justice League comic. That makes sense. That's interesting. It feels like Zdarsky is all over the place right now. Like I thought he was locked down by somebody, but like, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess not. Um, and I don't know, again, I don't know the exact details to this story because, again, it was supposed to be published as one of their digital first weekly series, and they ended up just doing it physically instead. So That's weird. I don't know how long ago it was written or when it was planned to come out or anything like that. So it's an interesting book. I like Mendoka's artwork. It has a very clean, classic superhero style, which actually contrasts nicely to the more somber, serious, emotional story that's being told. I'm in for the ride, I think, uh, not to riff on the, the title Last Ride, but I think I'm on board for this one uh, to see how it plays out. I think Zdarsky is such a strong writer, and it's, again, another example of him doing something that isn't just funny. You know, I think between Sex Criminals and Jughead, he has a reputation of being a very funny writer, and this is a very serious superhero story, but doesn't seem to take itself too seriously the way that some of the uh, <clears throat> Tom King uh, stuff uh. might, you know? <laughs> So, um, sure. Sure. so, so I, I, I think it's an interesting book. I, I, I enjoyed the first issue, so I'm kind of curious to see where it goes from there. So, um, that being said, let's talk about the future. We have new comic books arriving every week, uh, every Wednesday or Tuesday if they're DC books. And this week they're arriving on the 2nd of June. What are you excited for this week, Kate? I'm excited for the Tea Dragon Tapestry by Katie O'Neill. This is the third and final installment in the Tea Dragon series. Um, I'm devastated by that. I love the series. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm sure that the series was meant for children, but like, is it though? There's definitely <laughs> some LGBT plus connections in there that I don't think I would have picked up as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then there's this pa- passion for like the art of tea making that I think that as a child, I would have been like, look at these dragons. Aren't they cute? And just completely <laughs> ignoring the tea side of the story. Sure. Sure. Um, the art is very, very adorable. Like there's these little dragons that have these little flowers growing off of them and you pick the flowers and they're the, those are the tea and all of the characters are also very cute. Um, not all of the characters are actually like human. Some of them are kind of like, if you're familiar with, with D and D sort of like this 
dragonborn style yeah. humanoid. <laughs> Paul knows. Um, Paul knows. There for are some sure. very Paul's. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, there are some very real like struggles um, for these characters in the story and previous okay. books there was a character who struggled to like choose her vocation you know that thing that we all have to do when we're like 17 and decide <laughs> what we're going to do for the rest of our lives right. um, and there's a couple of characters that are experiencing grief and there's a really strong suggestion that one of the little adorable dragons has like actual depression um like I said, I'm disappointed that this series is ending, but I'm also looking forward to seeing what Katie O'Neill does next. Gotcha. Huh. Yeah, I never, I not heard of this. This actually sounds kind of interesting. So I might have to check that one out. Um, yeah, once again, all of, like, everything I read is on Hitler, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Hey, that's, that's not, so no ex- that's not a bad thing. That's exactly. True. So I have no excuse to not check it out. So, yeah. Interesting. What about you, Nick? What are you excited for? Uh, well, for me, it's The Visitor number five, and this is a valiant book uh, by written by Paul oh, Levitz. I know, shocking. I mean, these days it is shocking, <laughs> honestly. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> with art by Sue Lee, which is weird because um, this is a mini series, and one through four and issue six were written by MJ Kim. Sorry, drawn by MJ Kim, mm-hmm. who I think most recently did Faith dream side i think the faith dream side miniseries um so i'm not really sure why there's all of a sudden a different artist on number five uh were this a couple years ago i would say valiant was like gonna do like a whole flashback issue and they wanted to bring in a separate artist and sort of get a different aesthetic because that's how valiant used to work and don't worry i'm not gonna do the you know the good old days soapbox for too long but that's how things used to be i'm quite convinced that this issue number five was probably done either um because of deadlines or logistics or or something like that because that's kind of where things are now um lee most recently drew ashen thorn for ahoy comics this the, the premise of this book you know was you know unstoppable untraceable unkillable this is how he changes the world who is the visitor why are the leaders of the world terrified of him and will they live long enough to find out and it's this character that shows up and starts you know killing all of these prominent people and i don't remember all of it because here's the interesting part uh this mini series began in 2019 okay mm-hmm. number 4 mm-hmm. came out all the way back in march of 2020 that will probably tip you off as to why this miniseries has gone 15 months between issues. Sure. Obviously, uh, COVID stuff messed up this book's schedule like crazy. And I'm not really sure why they chose to resume it when they did. Because this book, in some ways, actually engages with like more of the world-building canon of Valiant more than others have which is to say so many of them aren't doing any of it at all anymore that it was weird to see them either resume or start a lot of their other books and just let this thing kind of sit so again i'm not really sure maybe i I know valiant had like a pencils down nobody's drawing from this point on in like april or something and i thought this book was maybe being drawn in advance but maybe it wasn't bottom line is just it's very weird to see this book, this mini series, now drop issues over three different years, <laughs> which is sure. wild. That's interesting. And uh, I'm 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 just really interested to just 
finally finish this and and see what happens especially because like levitz has so rarely done anything um non-big two or i think even non-dc yeah. right so yeah yeah uh, it's it, it it should be interesting especially as it was still it might have been a pre-dmg acquisition creation you know before dmg took gotcha. the majority share so yeah we'll we'll see how this goes but it's weird. Yeah. And then maybe maybe next year you can fill us in on issue six when that finally comes out. So, right? <laughs> you, you went exactly where I was going to go. So, yeah. I'll <laughs> okay, let you good, know how yeah. it is when it finishes in 2025. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, before we get to my pick, I want to mention uh, we have some listeners here in the Discord who always tune in and listen live as we record. We got – and they – Give us their picks for the week. Uh, both Danny and BN are both picking The Nice House on the Lake. Number one, I think that's a new uh, horror series that uh, James Tinian is doing over at DC. Um, so yeah, uh, I was kind of curious about that one too. So we'll hope to see how that one turns out. Um, for my pick though, I'm going to go with Hollow Heart number four. This is uh, written by Paul Allure and drawn by Paul Tucker. Um, I didn't pick it just because both creators share my names. I actually really do enjoy this series. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is uh, from Vault Comics. Um, it's part body horror, part queer love story, part sci-fi. It's a really, really interesting book that feels very unique to me, and I'm really engaged with it. Um, I just read issue three, so I'm already on board for issue four. Um, the main premise here is that L is a the, sort of one of the main characters – basically a cyborg, um, a body that was reconstructed and put into a mechanical battle suit, basically, by this sort of vague, giant, evil tech defense company. And uh, one of the scientists that's working on the suit is Mateo. Elle and Mateo have a sort of emotional connection to each other that develops over the first couple issues. And Mateo wants to help Elle escape the lab and so they can live together and have a life together. And that happened in issue three, but there is a deeper story here going on where it's really about almost the limits of empathy. You know, how much can you do uh, to someone or for someone given the radically different circumstances in which they live? Does that make sense? So you have someone basically falling in love with the personality of this like cyborg kill bot. And they can have a relationship, but there's obviously going to be some disconnect between the way they relate to each other since one has a, a human body and one has a robot body. So it reminds me of a lot of the themes that Grant Morrison explored in uh, Doom Patrol with Robot Man. Yeah. That character, Cliff Steele. Yeah. You know, and to have a sort of sympathetic, well-developed, complex and messy gay relationship in a sci-fi horror comic is really interesting, I think, and really um, intriguing. And it's well done. I think this this series obviously crafted a lot of care. There, It's a deep emotional story. And Paul Tucker's artwork, again, is one of those examples that looks very simplistic on the surface, yet the action and the storytelling is so well done. It's a really unique feeling book, even for Vault. I think this one really stands out for me from a lot of the stuff they've been doing. And I'm really excited to see where the story goes. So I, I wholeheartedly recommend Whole Hollow Heart if you haven't checked it out yet. I heard some people maybe compare it and tell me if this is wrong or not. There mm -hmm. were some comparisons being made to Alien. Is that true? Or were people just basically trying to prey upon 
my favorite things to get me to read this book. <laughs> um, you know, I'd have to see exactly what they're comparing it to. I mean, if I remember, if they're comparing it to, um, was it Bishop, the character in Alien, the uh, the android character, right? Yeah, the synthetic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could maybe see that. I mean, it's been a while since I've really read or watched any Alien stuff, so I don't know. I didn't get that. But again, maybe that's just because I'm not as connected to Alien as some other people are. So, okay, uh, sure. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting book. And again, Vault is, does so much good stuff. And this one in particular, I think, stands out. So uh, that being said, we're going to take a quick break here. And then we'll be back for our topic for this episode, which is our comic book summer school reading guide. Uh, we'll explain more what that means when we come back in just a few minutes. Before we get to the main topic of today's episode, I do have a couple announcements that Mike has given me to uh, announce to you. Uh, we want to give a special shout out to Elsa Chartier, a friend of the show, for supporting us on IRCB and our Patreon site. Uh, we'll give more information about our Patreon at the end of the show, but thank you for supporting us. We always appreciate it. And also, we want to mention that our book club this coming Saturday will be Sweet Tooth Volume 1. Mike is going to also record a live episode of the first episode of his Sweet Tooth TV discussion show. So you can brush up on your Sweet Tooth in anticipation of the Netflix series and hear Mike rave about how great it is live when he records that. So that being said, we want to get to our main topic of discussion today, which is our comic book summer school. Now, what do we mean by that? Um, I pitched this topic to Kate and Nick because here in the United States, Memorial Day, which is the day after we're recording here, Monday, is the sort of unofficial beginning of summer, and uh, we want to be a, have a productive summer and learn a lot. So I was thinking about comics that are explicitly educational, uh, comics that are designed to teach you something or show you something and use the comic book medium as an educational tool. So I thought maybe we'd talk about that in general, talk about whether we think comics are useful as educational tools, and then give some examples of comics that are books that we enjoyed that did learn, teach us something we learned something from and are designed to do that. Now I want to clarify, I don't mean books that maybe are biographies where you learn about the, the uh, subject. You know, I think a lot of the box Brown biographies are great comics. And I learned a lot about Andre the Giant and uh, Andy Kaufman and the creator of Tetris by reading those books, but they're biographies first. So I want to talk about books that are explicitly designed to convey information and are educational in nature, if that makes sense. So I have a, an example that actually sort of made me think about this topic that I want to give out first, and then I'll throw it over to Kate and Nick to give their examples and their thoughts. But there's a book that I recently picked up called Hey Amateur um, that Black Crown published last year. It's a book that I saw in previews and ordered and then forgot that I'd ordered until it popped up in my uh, pull box at my comic shop. But basically what it is is a group of comic book creators. We have all different character, uh, creators from across the spectrum of comics, each doing a one-page comic that is a how-to guide. So it's like those WikiHow uh, articles that you see online that are uh, illustrated guides to do things, but it's comic book based and each comic is a nine-panel grid. So for example, you have How to Make a Burrito the Right Way by Gilbert Hernandez. You have... Um, how to Carve a Pumpkin by Jill Thompson, How to Skank at a Ska Show by Sam Greenberg, 
How to Draw Likenesses by Gene Ha, How to Have a Career in Comics by Peter Bag, and many, many more. And I like the idea of using the comic book medium, specifically the nine panel grid, to do an educational explanation of how to do something. Something useful, maybe like carving a pumpkin or something not so useful, like how to survive a bear attack, you know, things like that. So it really made me think about how useful comics are as educational tools. I think they're very educational, but I've talked enough. Uh, Nick, Kate, where do you stand on this topic? Are comics useful in the classroom as educational tools? I've read a bunch of, or I should say, I've read a few of the Mm -hmm. maker comics from first, second, and all of those are really, um, really great at teaching you the basics for, for something specific. And the way that they present it, I think is really friendly for a younger reader. They, they present, the subject as as a story so for example grow uh uh let's see bake like a pro by phelan koch was presented like the story of a young for some reason a young witch who who decides that her magic um needs to be more special than than just being a baker but then she gets into baking and she's like oh this is magic all by itself Mm -hmm. um but the but in the meantime the story is teaching you how like the um, the temperature of the butter when you put it into your dough is going to change the like how how soft or hard your cookie is sure. um, or how much it spreads out in the oven, things like that. And it doesn't get like super into the science or anything, but it does give you enough information to get you started to get a reader more interested in baking to try some new things. Um, mm-hmm. And I did that, you know, that, oh, that yeah. worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also grabbed... Um, grow a garden in the same series that one's by alexis frederick frost and I, I grabbed this one i bought this one specifically because i have i i was wanting to learn how to how to start a garden which i've done mm-hmm. and i i wasn't succeeding <laughs> i was doing very poorly <laughs> sure <laughs> um and even though this comic is for um kind of kind of designed for kids um and i'm an adult and i can get like you know more professional reading and I can look things up on the internet. This comic, just reading this comic helped me realize that I'm doing something wrong with my watering. Hmm. Like I was mm-hmm. watering too much or too little. So. So it was, it was useful. And, and do you think it was the, uh, the comic book aspect of the presentation that made it more engaging than looking something up online or more useful in that regard? It was definitely um, more engaging like gotcha. it's yeah. it's one thing to look something up online and say hey google what am i doing wrong here mm-hmm. and and not being able to, to figure it out because you don't know what you're looking for yeah. um and then and then another thing to just like read um a you know the steps a b c d e for starting a garden and you know a few of them um a few of these steps would say if your leaves turn yellow or white or they're not um they're not growing as fast as the package of the seeds seeds say that they should like maybe this is what's happening yeah and that was really helpful and that helped me like troubleshoot what i was doing wrong and then i got this really cute story at the same time (laughs) well there you go yeah best of both worlds really yeah yeah it was (laughs) (laughs) what about you nick I mean, first off, in in response to what Kate was saying, like, I I do think there is, and this is like, 
applying to books in general, not to be like books versus the internet, let's fight, right? Because we, we don't need to, and that is not the topic of today's show. But there's there's almost something liberating about being like, well, I need to do task X, and here's a book I have for dealing with task X, and I'm just going to follow the book as opposed to get on the internet. And then like, whenever you get on the internet, you, you know, all of a sudden you're now like, you have to become a curator, right. Of the knowledge you're being given. Is this trustworthy? Is this not trustworthy? Where do I go for this? Is their answer comprehensive? Is it clear? Is it not clear? So sometimes it's just really great to just have a book where you're like, somebody wrote this and then had to come back a couple days later and look at what they wrote and go, you know what? That makes sense, <laughs> or that doesn't make sense, and right, that alone right. is useful. And then if they have an editor, it means there's somebody else that goes, yeah, that makes sense, or this doesn't make sense at all. And it's very relieving. You know, there's a lot of relief that comes with being like, several people have vetted this source, and I don't need to go look at another one, and I don't need to just critically analyze it. And so, mm-hmm. when you have that. And then you also have the ability of sequential art to sort of convey a story. I think that that helps. I mean, I, yes. I, I think honestly, you could draw some nine panel grids around Ikea instructions and it would effectively <laughs> be the exact same thing, which, which is to say that it works like it, it works. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a, there's a reason why whenever you get on an airplane, all the safety instruction guides are basically pictorials. They're not, written out instructions. They're just illustrated guides, right? Right. It's because that, and I think, you know, of course I won't be able to find the exact article, but I remember years ago finding some article that was explaining the, and I hate when that's the thing where it's like, I wrote an article once, therefore I'm an expert. Yeah. But, um, anyway, <laughs> there, 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 there were studies done by the Department of Defense that showed that soldiers that were training retained information better when it's presented both visually in pictures and written. Oh, which yeah. proves that I've comics, heard this too. And maybe you know, it was from you and maybe you just spread this wild idea <laughs> and it just, it, sure. it, it caught on to me, but I've, I've heard that as well. Like army instruction manuals are that way for a reason. Yeah. Because it works. Yeah. And because it, it works. And I think there's something to that. And I think even what's even more interesting was that comics that are, drawn or intended to be educational, but also entertaining, you're kind of getting a better example of that because the artwork has to be clear and precise and also expressive at the same time. It's not just simple. It's not Ikea directions that are just purely informational. When you have an artist behind that who brings an artistic aesthetic style to it, it makes it even more engaging, right? Yeah. No, no, completely. Um, I think... Uh... You know, um, there's some great stuff out there by Gene Yang, um, yeah. where he's he's sort of outlined the history of comics and education. We'll we'll put this link in the notes, uh, and it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating stuff um, because he's largely talking about how, you know, in the 1940s, 95% of all 8 to 14 year olds were reading comics. 65% of all 15 to 18 uh, year olds were reading comics. And so there was definitely a real push, especially in academia, um, in in uh, education as an academic field, in sociology as an academic field, to sort of 
um, really look into this and figure out, is this something that they could tweak or adjust or, or inject into educational curriculums? Uh, or if maybe people felt um, as Wortham felt that it was um, obviously a big thing of importance for kids, but that it was actually detrimental mm-hmm. to their um, to their learning experience. And right. uh, it was it's 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 really really interesting stuff. Um, they they talk about these different studies that they did, where they um, they basically uh, let me see if I remember this right. Like they gave they gave a group of kids. They had two groups of kids, and they gave um, a group of kids basically a test on material. And the first group was given basically uh, a sort of comic book-esque um, set of content where you had pictures and you had prose. Mm-hmm. And the second group was just given the prose. Um, and then they actually inverted the test and and um, so that the groups – regardless it's it's all laid out there in the article but more or less as as most people would obviously guess um there was more retention being done by the groups that um that uh dealt with the um visual plus prose elements uh combined yeah and what was really interesting was that the group that didn't initially get the both elements combined and then they took the test second um, they still uh, also um, had a significant boost, which would have been from the uh, – anyway, uh, clearly we're, I'm not going to condense this whole academic study. My The bottom line is it, it's <laughs> sure. uh, for everyone who's like got their, well, what about this? What about this? Like I think they dotted all their I's mm-hmm. and crossed all their T's is, is just what I'm getting at here. So, Gotcha. Yeah. And again, it just makes me wonder if, um, again, having a sort of – narrative aspect to it is somehow even more engaging than just being purely visual. You know, if that makes sense where there are comics that I think maybe fall into a gray area for me with this topic. The one topic, one example I thought of was relish by Lucy, Lucy Nisley, which on the surface is a memoir about Nisley's, uh, experiences with food and she's remembering certain dishes that she had an emotional attachment to at certain parts of her life. So it's a memoir, but in between each chapter, there's an illustrated recipe of the thing that she was just talking about. So on one hand, you do have a sort of narrative that's very personal. You also have illustrated recipes on learning how to make new dishes. And I think that personal connection that the author has with the information they're conveying somehow makes it even more engaging than just an instruction guide or recipe would be. I read, um, I think it was called, I moved to Los Angeles to become a animator, something like that. Oh yeah. And I I think I, yeah, yeah. I, I think I did read it, um, based on either your recommendation or something that you said that you wanted to read. Yeah. Um, here it is. It's it's called I Moved to Los Angeles to Work in Animation by Ma- Natalie uh, Nuragat. Mm-hmm. And it was the same kind of book where it's her memoir, but there's also a whole lot of like advice or or like anti-advice, you know, like this is what I did and don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was it, I imagine that it, it would be very helpful for somebody who wanted to work in animation or maybe really any kind of, of art where you're 
your physical location is very important to mm -hmm. being able to find a job or work with clients. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And again, it's maybe not something that I'm looking to do is to go become an animator, but learning more about the background and education that someone went through to do that is actually really interesting. You know, it could be more general life advice than specific in that regard, but I felt maybe you'd learn more about what it would take to be an animator than just a normal memoir might might convey, right? Yeah, I I feel like um, couching all of this uh, education <laughs> in some kind of story is really helpful based on on the things that I've read that are that are nonfiction mm -hmm. specifically, um, such as those memoirs or or the maker comics. Um, I did read the comic book story of beer by Jonathan Hennessy, Mike Smith, Aaron yeah. McGonnell, and Tom or Orzeszkowski. And I think that you've read this one too, Paul. Um, yep. Yep. That one's not really couched in a story, mm -hmm. but at the same time, there is a narrative to it because, because the book does go through the history of beer and, and it, the information is presented in a really interesting way. Like, it's got different art styles for the different periods of history that it's in. Yeah. Um, and occasionally you'll get like a repeat. I want to say it's a character, but um, in one situation, the section is talking about the science behind, I think, uh, fermentation, maybe. Mm -hmm. sure. um, and little yeast characters are like little bulldozers with faces on them. <laughs> 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 so you are like watching, you know steps a through d or whatever of of the little yeast bulldozers doing their job um so there is there is like some narrative in this book and it is a very it is a very big book or at least it takes a long time to read because there's so <laughs> much information but i found it very engaging yeah it's very thorough and like i i love beer i've but i understand so little of the actual brewing process and this book was actually really educational in that regard. And I think part of that was there's an artistic license being used. Like you use the example of the yeast being bulldozers. Like I know what yeast do, but when it's put in that framework, using that creative and uh, artistic license, it makes it way more engaging than just someone explaining to me the steps in the brewing process, which I can already feel my eyes glazing over having had that conversation before. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I think this book was a far better way of conveying that information. And you learned a lot about not just beer in general, but specific styles of beer and, you know, how they're developed over time and the, the sort of geographical history of beer. It's, it's a really, really engaging book and it's very heavy, but it never feels daunting, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you sort of bring that up because when I was reading Gene Yang's article, um, they talk about one of the many strengths of uh, this medium as as a you know facilitating learning is that in terms of like mm -hmm. English as a second language or I guess whatever language you want to use it for, um, is that yeah. unlike other mediums like TV uh, or films, which you know occasionally we do hear people say. Um, you know, oh, I learned English from watching this TV show or whatever, um, is right. that uh, with with comic books, you're allowed to tackle this stuff at your own pace. So whether it's something that's maybe making sense to you perfectly, or it's something where you need a little bit more time to digest it, engaging with that material in comic book means obviously that you can 
you can take that at whatever rate you need and not that it's, you know, here and gone and fleeting. Although of course now we live in the DVR on demand era where you can stop, rewind and record everything. But I guess, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's that ability <laughs> to sort of really take it on, on whatever pace you need. And as you were saying with the beer stuff, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, if someone wants to have a, 45 minute conversation with you how many times are you going to ask them probably none you know can can we just stop and replay like the last one minute you know i want to go (laughs) over this part in detail again that's that's not going to happen so Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah it's 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 useful in that way too i think so and nick you you mentioned when uh earlier in the show when the books you read would fit into this topic do you want to Take a few minutes to describe that one and uh, yeah, why sure. you thought it fits. So I read one of these Nathan Hale books, which is kind of curious because I know, you know, sometimes in psychology they talk about like, oh, you know, if, if you name your kid this, they end up doing this or whatever. And so it's kind of weird that they these people name their kid Nathan Hale and he goes on to write these books about literally with the main character being Nathan Hale. Um, it's kind of a weird premise. I actually had to go Google some stuff because I, I didn't pick the first book, uh, because I'm dumb like that. Um, because <laughs> I think the way I approached it as an adult, so I don't even know what other people would think about it was that like each book is about a specific instance in history, whether it's the Donner party, whether it's, um, Nathan Hale as a revolutionary war spy. And so you just pick up whichever book you want. Um, and there you go. It's self-contained and, and it largely is, but there's sort of this narrative skeleton, which is that uh, Nathan Hale, Revolutionary War spy, he's about to be hung. He's on the, um, what do you call that? Uh, the uh, like gallows? Yeah, the gallows. He's on the gallows and the hangman's yeah. about to hang him. And he like suddenly gets swallowed by this book of American history and he learns all of American history to which my brain went like, oh, yeah, like how far into the future? Because like, you know, <laughs> I was just trying to narratively break this book and be like, tell me about 2424, Nathan Hale. <laughs> and I was like, don't be mean, Nick. Don't ruin this book for other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so he learns all of this history and he says, you know, don't hang me. I'll tell you all of these stories. And so it turns into basically, what is that? A thousand and one nights where it's sort of the... uh right the constant weaving of tales to like keep people from i don't remember how that all plays out but so you have these characters nathan hale and the hangman and this other character um i think the person who was overseeing the hanging and basically they act as this skeletal framework for the series where you know he's telling them these stories that he's learned Um, And of course, they have no concept of what airplanes are or what any of this is. And so you get a good (laughs) back and forth instead of just like a narrative, you know, an omniscient narrative info dump of this is what I learned and this is what I learned and this is what I learned. Because he's having to convey these stories to these two characters whose knowledge of history like begins and ends in 1780, whatever, 1770, whatever, you know, he's having to explain all of these um, ideas and concepts that some of which we understand as haha were from the future and some of which we don't understand that well and that's why we're reading the book in the first place so mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird structural conceit that if you don't start at the beginning you maybe have to figure it out but like 
you know, I think kids aren't bothered by those things. They just keep reading the book. Whereas when you're an adult, you're like, now, hold on. I need to understand this perfectly before I move on. And that's why adults are stupid. But so I read this book, The Rate of No Return. It's largely about the Doolittle bombing of, I don't know what the formal name for the event is, but it's the the Doolittle bombing of Tokyo, which was sort of the retaliatory measure to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, and what's, which is, I think seen at the end of the Pearl Harbor movie. So Michael Bay, there's your, there's your, um, name drop for today, I guess. Uh, there's (laughs) gotta be one. It was very surprising to me because one, this book has a lot of context, like for a book that I think is for teens, it is very obsessed with setting up the proper context. So they talk about all of the past Japanese, uh, conflicts that led up to this one, we go through almost all of Pearl Harbor, like beat for beat for beat. It's like 150 pages. The actual raid maybe makes up the last 30 or 40. I could be wrong, but I was surprised by how much historical context they were interested in giving. Um, I say they because Nathan Hale is the writer and the artist, but from what I've read at the back of the book, unsurprisingly, he ha- it sounds like he has a lot of researchers or it feels like he has a lot of researchers. And when you read the book, it's, it's dense, it's packed. There's a lot of information there. You follow like all 16 of the ships, ships or boats. There's a whole thing ongoing joke in this book about what are ships versus what are boats. And I'm probably going to screw that up right here too. So, but uh, (laughs) I was just surprised. Like, it's really great at conveying really good diagrams. There's some really great diagrams of Pearl Harbor and they list out all of the little ships and they show you which ones got sunk or which ones got damaged. There's a real sense of scope and scale that you just don't get when it goes, there were three destroyers, there were six aircraft carriers. And it's like, okay, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and beyond that i think what's so great about a book like this is you go well you know what does a light cruiser look like what does a oil or boat look like you know what does a destroyer look like you hear all these terms but they never really you need like a visual indicator and so it's just really nice Mm -hmm. to have that yeah and then like the book also finds really interesting ways to weave in primary sources in ways that i think maybe younger readers would consider primary sources uh, too long, too drawn out, maybe difficult to understand. The book actually gives you all of Eleanor Roosevelt's speech following the events of Pearl Harbor. And it is sort of a prolonged speech, but it's given word for word. And what's great is the book obviously breaks up five or six words of the speech, panel by panel by panel, and sort of giving sure. um, you know different cutaways of different people listening to the speech, maybe that pertain to that panel, you know, where she talks about you know I have relatives that are out at sea or whatever, and it cuts to them, and so it it gives readers, especially younger readers, the ability to take in smaller chunks of something with some great contextual pictures, but then it also sets a pace, you know, it sets a pace for this primary source that isn't overwhelming. And at the end, it even goes, congratulations, you've just read all of Eleanor Roosevelt's full December 7th (laughs) broadcast on Pearl Harbor. And I was like, one, that's neat. (laughs) B, also, don't be condescending. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Don't patronize me. Well, yeah. 
That's really interesting. I think, again, I think that speaks to the topic here is that the idea that rather than just being a sort of dry explanation of a subject or explanation of the topic, the visual aspect of comics, particularly something that's designed to be engaging and entertaining, can really be a useful way of pre- uh, presenting information. You know, so like that thing where you're like trick someone into learning something, even though they think they're just enjoying a story. You know what I mean? Right. It's really, really effective. You know, the most obvious example I thought of, of course, was Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, which is literally an exploration of the comic book medium as a comic book. Right. And I remember um, when I was teaching, I taught an aesthetics course. And I put that book on the syllabus and most of the students had a very positive engagement with it, whether they were already comic book fans or not. The aspect of the book that was entertaining overshadowed the sort of heavy educational aspect of it. You know what I mean? It's an engaging medium that you're also learning a lot about while you're reading that book. And I think that's another example of a, an example, another example of a book that is better because it's an artistic expression of information rather than just being a dry explanation of what a comic book is, right? Yeah. And like for that book, how the how and or why the hell would you want to do a book about an aesthetic medium in prose? Um, <laughs> right, exactly. That's right. just it only it can only be done in that format in a way. Yeah. And I mean that said, I think that book is so I don't know. I have I really like that book. I think it's really good. Obviously <clears> we're not here to have a discussion about is Scott McCloud's understanding comics good or bad. I think it's good. Right. I do think it's it's so dense. And that's not necessarily a criticism. Like and we've we've even talked about that book on the show before. I think it was actually yeah. even sure. we had an episode dedicated to it. And I mean, yeah. you can literally sit down and have you can have a forty five minute discussion about two pages of that book. Like it's not <laughs> sure. hard. It's not yeah. hard. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess it's, it's packed and I would recommend that book to people, but just be for people who like to fly through stuff. Don't fly through that book. It's <laughs> no. And it's a book. It's a book that's on my shelf. I know exactly where it's on my shelf. Cause I'm constantly pulling it off to yeah. read and flip through. Like it's a book I go back to over and over again for different reasons. So it's, it is like a textbook or a book that you've, you know, one the the rare textbook you kept from your college years, right? That you keep going back to because you learn something from it. Like, it's not just something to be read read once and be done with. Like, it's 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 a part of my. It's constantly on my shelf. Like, it's 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 constantly part of my reading. So, a similar example would be the comic book history of comics that I know Fred Van Lanty and Ryan Delavey have done. I think they've done a lot of those, right? Where they kind of go through the history of comic books as a business and a medium, and they use the visual aspect of the comic to sort of illustrate that history. So I've read a little bit of that stuff, but have either of you read that comic book history of comics? Um, Gosh, haven't they done like three of these at this point? I think so, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. I've read the first one, which, which, which I think was comic book history of comics. I, I know they've done a couple other <laughs> subsequent ones since. I mean, it makes sense. Like how, how, how else would you want to do that, right? Like, right, yeah. I did start reading this. I was hoping to read the whole thing for this week's show. Oh, sure. And it's it's very dense. Um, <laughs> so I'm not that far into it, but I really enjoyed the way that they have um, that they're presenting the information. Like they they are 
basically drawing a comic in the style of of a comic in that time period that they're talking about mm-hmm. and the very beginning of the book is is really interesting because it talks about how um the very first or one of the very first comics that was printed in in a newspaper um was almost like a diagram like somebody had like diagrammed a joke almost mm-hmm. um and then it talks about like one day somebody added um outlines to like group these these sections of movement and that's how panels started um, oh sure and how yeah. that like changed what a comic could be like how it turned it into sequential art mm-hmm. and that um you know i'm only like 20 pages into this book <laughs> but um that was really interesting and then yeah. something that i that i found um that i appreciated that i kind of found funny was that um i'm i so i i work in in prose publishing and we have to have uh disclaimers for any other printed um content that that we reference on the copyright page and most of the time the copyright page is just very tiny text um, that has a list of all these other books in it and like who own, owns the rights to them and things like that. But in this book, the comic book history of comics, they actually draw, drew these tiny little panels that had the <laughs> disclaimer in it. And then it showed you a piece of that art style so that like when you got to it in in the book, you would know like what it's what it is, what it's gotcha. from. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've like I said, I've, I've read a little bit of that stuff, but again, it's so engrossing and um, it, um, encompassing. Like it's, it's kind of a daunting book, but I think that speaks to the research that they did. I mean, that same creative team, Van Lente and Del, uh, Dunlavey, also did Action Philosophers, which is sort of a similar book where it's a comic book that uses philosophical historical figures as sort of superheroes, but and doing that, they're explaining each philosopher's thought and theories. So you're actually learning a lot about the history of philosophy in the sort of general framework of a action-packed superhero comic. So again, tricking you into learning something, which I don't know how I feel about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah, I know we, there's a lot of examples we can give and a lot more to this topic. I know we're kind of running short on time. So Let's just go around the horn. If you have one last example or conclusive thought about this topic before we wrap it up, um, Nick, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I would say um, one thing I came across, which I did find kind of interesting, uh, and we will obviously have this linked in the notes, is that um, Scholastic Publishing, aka um, uh, the purveyor of the uh, world-renowned Scholastic Book Fair, uh, the only place to get wild and wacky pencil toppers and bookmarks. <laughs> um, and the probably highlight of my year every year of elementary school. And basically the publisher that is must be making money hand over fist right now and has for years. Mm-hmm. They obviously are very pro graphic novel. Uh, if you're a real cynic, you could say, well, of course they are. They're making so much money with these things. It's, uh, you know, look, <laughs> yes. you look at things like, uh, what is it? Raina Tellum, oh boy, Tellum Migator, Telgemeier's, uh, yeah. what is it called? Smile, mm-hmm. I think. And, um, or whatever that book's called. And then, you know, Dave Pilkey's Captain Underpants and, and Dogman and, and right. things like this have obviously sold gangbusters. But, uh, you know, they're really big into this. They've been pushing this for a while. Uh, they actually have a really mm-hmm. good 
sort of lesson plan guide for teachers, which we'll attach. It's a PDF. It's like nearly like 20 pages and it goes into how to teach or at least the basics of how to teach uh, graphic novels in classrooms, uh, running the whole gamut from, from, you know, kindergarten all the way up through high school uh, with thankfully a lot of online and print resources for, for uh, educators who want to really uh, drill down on a specific, you know, either a specific subject of uh, this content or a specific grade range of this content. But Mm -hmm. I've looked through some of it and I I really, really like it. They even go through on a broad level talking about, um, you know, the emphasis on needing uh, to have an analysis of panels and gutters, descriptions and word balloons, sound effects and motion lines. And um, I think that that's great, Uh, not only because I think even a lot of older readers – and, and not that everybody needs to sit down and, and critically dissect every comic they read, but I think even a lot of older readers would benefit from saying, you know, this is four different categories of things to maybe just think about or understand or ask why I'm seeing them one way versus another. So I, I, I think it's great. I think any person would probably benefit from taking a look at this. But yeah, I just, I, I thought okay. that was great. I would I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, definitely something I would I would, I would promote. Uh, and gotcha. I think some of the online resources, maybe I think a few of them maybe don't quite work right now, or at least there were one or two links that didn't work <laughs> for me, but, um, okay. yeah, definitely something I would, I would, I would recommend. Nice. Nice. So you're a pro educational comics. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, I, I, Good. I definitely grew up at a point <laughs> where I'm not sure if I got through, I don't know if I read any, I don't know if I had any required reading in high school that was comic oh, book. Okay. I'm almost 100% no, no, no. certain. And, you know, I'd love to see that that change. I mean, sorry, this was the point I was stumbling trying to come up with for so long about this teacher's guide is that the one thing I really do appreciate it about it is that it is very, it acknowledges that comics are overwhelmingly visually centric, art centric versus prose. And I think and you can read about this in that, I think the Gene, um, the article um, by, uh, um, gosh, I can't think of his last name now. Gene Yang. Gene Yang yeah. Was that uh, comic books have always had sort of a rocky history with education. But one of the bigger problems is that in recent decades, as comics have slowly been accepted into education, they've sort of been accepted with the caveat of A, it's a stepping stone, right? And B, right. that it's... Um, the way it's being taught, the way it's frequently taught is still very prose oriented and it's very prose centric. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciated that the scholastic guide is very art centric. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to dig into that. That sounds interesting. Um, Kate, do you have any last minute recommendations for our syllabus here we're putting together? Um, not specifically title wise, but I did notice that the same publisher of the Maker Comics, um, First Second, which is owned by Macmillan, also mm-hmm. has a series of science comics and history yeah. comics that I somehow didn't know about until today. Sure. Um, there's a book coming out this week called The American Bison by Andy Hirsch, and that's part of their history comics series. So I'm going to have to check some of those out. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Hmm. 
As for me, one last book I want to recommend because I just recently finished it uh, was Save It for Later, uh, Promises, Parenthood, and the Urgency of Protest by Nate Powell. Came out last month, I believe, and Nate Powell, most of you probably recognize as the artist who worked on the March books with the late John Lewis. And this book, again, is sort of a gray area because they are a series of personal essays that Powell has done about our current political climate and the way that's affected his life and his children. But there are a couple chapters in this book that are very well-researched and detailed explanations of um, the way symbols have changed over time, specifically Mm. the way that the Punisher symbol became used by white power groups and Blue Lives Matters groups. So it's a book that, again, is a personal expression that Powell is giving about his experience for the past couple of years in our current political climate, but it also has an educational aspect where he actually does a lot of research to explain like, look, here's why we have these blacked out American flags with the blue line in them, where it comes from, what it means, and the history of it. So if you want to engage with that stuff and find out more about it, I think it's a good resource. And I really enjoyed the book overall. So let me let me quickly tag on the end of that real quickly. For those of you who haven't read March, you should read March. For those of you who have read March and you aren't reading Nate Powell's other books, get on that. Honestly, his other stuff, his other OGNs are are absolutely, absolutely worth your time. They're so good. Any Empire is an absolutely essential read. That's such a good book. So I'll I'll throw that one in there. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm flipping through this Hey Amateur book as we're wrapping up here, so I'm going to have to stop so I can read this uh, page about how to recognize various types of vampires and protect myself from them. <laughs> oh, that seems very important, so I'm going to get to that <laughs> as soon as we're done here. Um, uh, I want to say to anyone listening, if you have any recommendations you want to add to our summer comic book reading syllabus we're putting together, please let us know. You know where to find us. We are all over the internet. You can find us all on Twitter. Um, I'm at Polly. Nick is at Death Star Plans and Kate is at Kate Lim, Kate L. Fear. And of course, the show itself is at IRCB Podcast. We post a comic book news, art we like, we have sassy little polls, whatever Mike feels like posting, it's all over there. This episode first aired on Patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons. Join today for exclusive series like the IRCB Movie Club, Saga of Saga, and more. You can join now at patreon.com slash IRCB Podcast. And if you haven't already, please rate and review our show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help us spread the word about the show. We would also love it if you would join the IRCB Discord community to chat comics and more and listen to our episodes live as we record. And that's at ircbpodcast.com forward slash discord. And it would also help us out a lot if you would tell your friends or your local comic book shop about the show. Infinity Shred is the best band in the known universe. They also do the music for our show here. I want to say thank you to Xander, who is a wizard who edits the show and makes us sound so good. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Kate. Uh, Thank you for everybody in the Discord chat for joining in and listening live. And I want to thank you, the listeners. And remember, until next time, comics are good, and so are you. Comics are good.